0: What a Woman, conversations with powerful women who share powerful stories. This podcast was created by me, your host Caroline Lyons, and my friend and producer Sarah Benner, two mums searching for inspiration, and we hope you'll be inspired too. Today we are joined by the amazing Laura Crowley to talk about Autism Spectrum Disorder, with a particular focus on women and girls. Laura is an author, lecturer and autism consultant with over 23 years experience in this area. She founded Laura Crowley Connect in 2014, an autism consultancy where she provides educational resources and training events for both parents and professionals, and mentoring for teenagers. Laura has also been a lecturer on the Diploma in Autism Studies in UCC for nine years, a course which she was very involved in developing. Laura herself was identified as autistic at the age of 40 after having her children, so she can speak from very personal experience as well about why autistic girls are so overlooked and as a result why so many women are realising they are autistic later in life. Laura says she spent a lifetime feeling different But after being identified as autistic, she now feels so much happier and self-aware and self-compassionate. We really love this conversation and Laura was just brilliant at articulating and sharing her experience and knowledge. So we hope you will take as much from it as we did. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you so much. Um, So you have a huge amount of experience in this field. I think
1: over 22 years. Yeah, heading for... 24 now actually, right? (laughs) It feels surreal actually to say I've been doing something for 24 years because I feel like I am only 24. 24. (laughs) I'm with you. I'm with you. So yeah, it does feel a little surreal, but yeah, 24 years maybe and so you're a lecturer in the diploma of autism in in autism is that right in UCC yes that uh program started 9 years ago now so i lecture both on the online and in the in classroom version so yeah it's been a wonderful experience taking it from inception and it was the first autism studies course in ireland so it was really nice to be in it from the ground mm-hmm. up and kind of negotiating what was involved and what was to be learned and you know and it has evolved and changed so much in those years and we're now at kind of um, a stage where we're um, going hybrid between mm-hmm. online and in-person and it's just a really coercive learning experience where they're not only learning from the lecturers but we're learning from them as well mm-hmm. because a lot of them have a very invested life in the world of autism and the autistic community so it's, it's a fantastic area to be involved in. Great. And you've also founded your own um,
0: business, the Connect.
1: Yeah, so Connect came about in 2014, roughly. Um, I started lecturing and there was just a need for individualised support for families to help their children, I suppose, to engage socially and navigate the kind of the neurotypical um, community that we find ourselves in. Um, And... It has grown really, it started really with a focus on social skills and it has grown more to be family support and teen mentoring Um, and I absolutely love that area of my work, I just adore it because to get to meet all the different families and all the different kids and help them understand This really, really confusing world we live in. Yeah, and
0: I have to say, we just talked about your your Instagram pages. I think that really reflects that as well. A lot of the work you're doing, getting that point of view from Mm -hmm. the person with with autism, Mm -hmm. and helping, I think, us to understand where that you know you're coming from. Yeah, I
1: think, you know, there's this theory with um, autism and understanding the autistic kind of experience, and it's it's called the double empathy. Um, And basically what it says is that when two people experience the world from very different perspectives, that they find it very hard to empathize with each other's Mm -hmm. experience. So because the world seems like, well, that's sunshine, that's noise. And for the neurotypical person, they all stay kind of steady and stable. For the autistic person, we experience it so differently because depending on our days, things can be too loud. Things can be too bright. But that's very hard for somebody who doesn't have that sensory experience to understand. And that's where that double empathy comes in. It's, it's understanding that. So in my, face, in my Facebook and in my Instagram, I spend a lot of time trying to demystify mm. what goes on in the autistic brain. Because we think completely differently yeah. and we experience the world differently. And my experience of the world is going to be different to the next autistic person. But at the same time, it's good just to give an insight or parents who don't have any insight yeah, into yeah. the autistic experience. So
0: and I suppose just to start there at the very beginning, just in terms of how we you know describe autism. I mean, I think mm. that you pretty much have effectively
1: described it in that. Um, so if if you look at the, the textbooks, you're gonna get mm-hmm. a medical definition of what autism is, and they would say it's a neurobiological disorder, meaning that your brain is actually. You know, designed differently, and they call it a disorder. And there's lots of like words like deficit, and you know, um, for the autistic community, looking at it from what we call a neurodiversity perspective, which basically means that all brains are different, and autistic brains are just another different brain. We look at it more of we have different traits, we have different abilities, um and we would say that it is literally kind of like operating as an apple in an android world we just need different protocols we need different teaching we need different information in order to be the best that we can be mm-hmm. you know if you try and use uh, an android app on an apple phone it doesn't yeah. work and it's very similar i always kind of to that, that sure. yeah yeah <laughs> I, I always kind of use that analogy that we just need different supports but it's not that our brains are misfunctioning or anything like that they're just different they're just very different so um, that would be the way to describe it for me and do we know why um, we we can have it um there's lots of uh postulated causes and that but we try and move away from the word cause because when we focus on cause we focus on the why and the, it, there's a huge blame game there then as well. So you, you'll see a lot of studies coming out about too much testosterone in the womb and um, you know mothers who did this pre- during pregnancy and mothers did that. But realistically, it is a natural um, deviation in, in brain um, formation. Yeah. So it is something that's there from birth. And yes, obviously there can be um, environmental causes, but... There's also huge genetic causes. And we know looking back through history, it's always been there. Mm -hmm. It's just we didn't have a name for it. And I think one of the most important things as well is the world we live in now is so sensory rich. Like, for instance, in here now, we've got like the lights and I have lights over there and I have people on computers there. So there's screens there screens there. I can see people around me. That wouldn't have happened a 100 years ago you would have been living in a much less sensory rich environment. So your sensory needs and your sensory defensive kind of behaviours wouldn't really have come about because you wouldn't have had those stresses. And I think that's why we're seeing so much more um, identification because we're living in a world that really now is not built for our brains, unfortunately. Yeah.
0: And I suppose, really, do you feel the term actually? It, it's it's such a broad mm. spectrum as well mm. that it's it's. I mean, everyone's individual anyway, mm-hmm. and everyone's experience is going to be different. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think actually, it's something I read that you said that when you've met one person with autism, you've only met one person with autism, yeah. and the next person would be very different. So that's why it's also important to be sensitive when talking about. Yeah. And about that's sex. a really,
1: really famous um, saying. I I did not coin that one, but it, it's it's really representative representative of our experience because we are so different. But saying that. I can always spot another autistic person a mile off. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's down to communication styles and things I notice about their behavior and that. You know, I've always had that ability, which seems weird, but it's kind of like spotting someone in your mm-hmm. tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've met people on Instagram and I've, I've, you know cautiously said have you ever thought about having an assessment and one of my dearest friends on Instagram she went well I'm actually due one today and I was Mm -hmm. like oh I thought you're autistic since the first time we chatted online you know so there is we're all different but we do share commonalities Mm -hmm. and our communication style especially is is very easy to spot at times yeah.
0: And I suppose some of us would know some of the more common signs. Mm-hmm. And some of these will be, I guess, pretty stereotypical in a mm-hmm. way. You know, I mean, we know about sort of perhaps issues with eye contact mm-hmm. or, as you said, issues with communication. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we've always heard of special interests and things like mm-hmm. trains. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, perhaps signs that we might not have thought of. Yeah. And these perhaps, I believe, could be more common in girls, which yeah. is why we're seeing a lot of girls go onto the radio mm-hmm. and that's something we want to come onto. Because I know... Yeah. Yourself had a late diagnosis, mm-hmm. and I think there are a lot more women having mm-hmm. late diagnosis mm-hmm. now because it is being missed a lot more in girls in mm-hmm. childhood.
1: So, what we technically um, usually see is that boys externalize their traits and girls internalize their mm-hmm. traits. Okay, so if you can imagine, if a young boy isn't out kicking a football with his friends, isn't being boisterous, isn't getting in the thick of things, um he's straight away flagged as there's something here we're not very social we're not getting into the rough and tumble you know if a girl is quiet and studious she's just a quiet girl Mm -hmm. okay Uh, usually what you'll see is that girls fly onto the radar because they mask incredibly heavily which is where you are basically hiding any difference for um, fear of being kind of uh, singled out or seen as different, and that's something I really struggled with all of my life, um, and st- still have to monitor very closely that I don't fall back into masking, um, which is really really hard. Actually, a lot of the time, it's something I work with teens to do as well: is to spot when you're masking and how to come back mm-hmm. from it, um, and how to deal with not masking because there's anxiety huge anxiety in not masking Mm -hmm. because then you're real and then people can judge you and then they're seeing the real you and they're judging the real you so it's quite confusing but it all really stems from the fact that when all the studies were done all the books were written it was always boys that were studied so if you look at any of the papers um it's going to be boys it's um, any of the girls that were studied would have been girls who would have had um, limited verbal language and maybe a lot more visible difficulties Um what we're missing were the girls who were just flying under the radar so what we say is high functioning a lot of the time is the word that's used that really just means highly masked it's that you're just not seeing their difficulties mm-hmm. girls are usually caught Later than boys, um, on average, two years later, we know that majority of um, the actually the, the highest growing cohort of women of of individuals being um, receiving an identification of autism now is women over thirty five after their children have been identified. Wow. So we know that women are going years and years. I was forty, and um, but had spent a lifetime knowing I was different, mm. and that's. That's the biggest thing. So girls are going under the radar because they internalize, boys externalize, and those internal difficulties manifest then as mental health issues, Mm. depression, anxiety, OCD, um, eating disorders. We know that a a high percentage of um, individuals with eating disorders are actually undiagnosed autistic as well. Because, but it's it's. It's a very complex field, so we are doing our girls a huge disservice, um, and things are changing, but it's slow. I mean, it's taken us sixty years to get mm-hmm. to this point of, of identification for boys, mm-hmm. really, and mm-hmm. to be so good at identifying boys. But we have a long way to go yeah. for our girls. It's not spoken about half as much. No. Is it not? And it doesn't cross our minds, even I'm a daughter, mm-hmm. and I've thought of everything else, but mm-hmm. autism, mm-hmm. you know? Because she can speak, and because she's, yeah. you know, getting yeah. on in school, and... And yeah. Um, yeah. what was life like for you growing up, as a um, child? Like, I, had a, I had a really happy childhood, um, some of my, I suppose... Base memories are of anxiety, social anxiety mostly. In preschool, I can picture a sandpit and I picture two sets of feet joining me. Um, And I remember that feeling. It was just dread. I don't want to look up, you know. Mm. But then my parents would describe I was very social, I was very outgoing. But anything I joined, like Irish dancing, disco dancing, um, anything like that, when it came to an exam, I would feign disinterest, I would feign illness, and I would leave so I suppose I had an awful lot of anxiety and when you mask that heavily that you're finding things difficult that's what happens is your anxiety you're constantly on this everything is hard I'm you know so you become more anxious now I didn't have a name for anxious until I was about 27 Mm -hmm. and I was 30 when I started actually dealing with my anxiety but and. (laughs) It would never have occurred to anybody that I was autistic. I was very, very good at maths. I did very well. I had a little friend group that went my whole way through school with me. Now, a small friend group, but I had acquaintances. I was in school plays. I, you know, I was singing in the church. I was always um, in, like, had solo parts in the school plays and... It would never have occurred to anybody Mm -hmm. that I could be autistic. But I was depressed for a lot of my teenage years. I hid that very heavily. I was extremely anxious. I had a really depressive period as well in my early 20s. And I can look back at all of these now. Mm -hmm. But I just got up and got on with it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times I lived on my own. Um, I bought an apartment when I was like 23. Um, So I lived there on my own for 11 years. So I was able to... Hide a lot Mm -hmm. and also recover from... So, for instance, when I... I like being social. I would describe myself as an extroverted introvert. I love being social in small Mm -hmm. groups. But it drains me to the point where I may not be able to talk to anybody or do anything for two days Mm -hmm. afterwards. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest thing. So, when I lived on my own, nobody saw that. Mm -hmm. You know, and... Even since I've come out with my identification, I've had people who worked with me go, oh, I would never have guessed, you know? you know. And I had the public health nurse say to me, aren't you doing very well for someone with the autism? And I remember going, like, this is a public health nurse. Like, yeah. you know." And she also told me my daughter could not be autistic because when she asked her to look at the other monkey on the other wall, she did. And I was like, guys, we have a long way to go with our public health nurses, really aren't taking notice of a parent's concerns when that parent has already had 18 years working Mm -hmm. in that in that department you know and even to this day she's when I meet her with my other daughter she's kind of like oh I'm shocked that she did turn out to be autistic and I'm going like she had all of the signs well yeah if you looked Mm -hmm. you know so
0: yeah, and there's that issue with masking in a sense that pe- people almost, they're almost, it's like they're saying to you in a positive way, gosh, you're so, you know, I'd yeah. never have known as yeah. you are. Isn't that great that you can, yeah. rather than actually the fact that, you know, I suppose that's underestimating what it takes to mask. Mm-hmm. Or as you said, it's mm-hmm. all
1: bubbling under the surface. Yeah, exactly. It's like kind of like a swan. Yeah. You know, you look like you're coping. Like mm-hmm. I, I, um, host events, uh um, ball ladies lunch um I do public speaking I've spoken in front of 600 people and I appear very confident just like I am now Mm. you know I'm very able to um, express myself but the aftermath of that is that I am completely drained Mm. like Mm. properly completely drained and I will be exhausted this evening you know or even chatting to you guys now because you're new and I am on kind of high alert is the way I describe it Um, I am being myself I am like Um, to explain masking, masking is like wearing a costume that you didn't choose and you can't take it off um, and it's itchy and uncomfortable and everyone else thinks you look great but you are dying inside and that's what masking is
0: Do you think now having that diagnosis that you now understand yourself
1: and can accept yourself more? It is the best thing I have ever done in my life was go for that appointment. Um, it has made me so much more self-compassionate, um, respectful of, of what my body needs, what my head needs, um, mindful of how I communicate, um, like, my husband has never othered me. He has never, ever othered me. And that's really, really important because I find that, you know, sometimes people will infanticise you, kind of, like, treat you almost like you're a little bit like a child when you tell them you're autistic. Um, and some people just don't know what to say. But I... When I got my identification, I went to bed. I came home, said to my husband, yes, I am. And he went, do you want to talk about it? And I went, No. And I went up to bed and I slept and it took me three months to get my head around it. And I didn't really talk about it. And then when I was ready to talk, mm. it all mm. floats, you know. Um, but the amount of self-forgiveness for things I have done mm. or things that have happened mm-hmm. or, you know, ways I've dealt with things, things I've said. It's just, it's very freeing. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's very, very freeing. yourself. Yeah. So. Because I suppose it's that
0: there's a lot from what I've read preparing for today is that, um, you know, people will feel there's something wrong with them. You know, you just, and the worst thing is to think there's something wrong and you
1: don't know what it is to go through life feeling that way. Exactly. And like, I was so convinced that I didn't belong in my family that I searched for my adoption papers numerous times. I was convinced I must have been adopted. Mm now I know why I felt so different. And when you're not labeled, people often say to me, oh, I don't, I don't want to go for an assessment. I don't want a label on my child. I don't want a label on myself. And I say, your child gets labeled whether you actually instigate that process or not. Mm-hmm. Because I've been labeled with odd, uh, stubborn, um, <laughs> uh, too much, you know, too chatty, um, sarcastic. I've, I've, I've had so many labels put on me awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, my big thing is stubborn because when I make up my mind, I am very black and white and I have a very, very strong sense of justice. So if I feel I've been wronged, I will, I will dig my heels in until somebody gives me an apology or just says I was wrong. And I say, yeah, thank you. And now we can move on. So I've been labeled with all these little labels, but none of them, none of them were true, right? And then when I got my label, my actual label of being autistic, that one sat so well. It sat like a crown. Mm-hmm. That was so forgiving. All of the other ones did the damage. That one actually saved me. Mm-hmm. Saved me from my mental health, saved me from my anxiety, depression, depression. It's, it just saved me. So when people say they want to avoid a label, I always say your child will be labeled regardless. And I would rather label that fits. And that people are cognizant that they are a little person.
0: Yeah. they understand thinks differently, you know. Yeah.
1: And your child will know they're different. Whether you tell them or not, they, they know they're, they're different. Yeah. And if you keep bringing them to appointments and not telling them, they're going to think the worst. So, you know, there's a lot of people who don't want to tell their children they're autistic. And I'm saying, your child knows they're different. They need to know. And I always respect parental choice because every family is different and everyone makes decisions based on the energy and information they have at the time. Um, but I do believe it's incredibly important that we build a sense of pride in our kids in their own neurology. And, you know, we say to my daughter, my two daughters, I I finish every night and I say four things to them. I say, you are kind, you are clever, you are pretty and you are important. Mm -hmm. And I said that since they were babies. So I think we need to speak to young people as if they are just the the most wonderful things that have ever come to this planet. So that they believe it because everyone's going to knock them down. And now my youngest, when I say to my eldest, I know, and your autistic brain is amazing. My youngest goes, and my autistic brain is amazing. And then I have to go, oh. well, your neurotypical brain is amazing. Like it's, oh, that's the way you do things, like the way you do art, it just amazes me. And then she cries. She's like, I want to be autistic like mummy and my big sister. So we've had a lot of tears over her not being autistic, which everyone finds really weird. But I suppose in our house, she just wants to be like us. Mm-hmm. And I am raising my six-year-old to believe that her autism, while it, it keeps her from doing some things, that it is really the thing that will take her farthest. Like, she has a reading level of 10 to 11. She taught herself to read when she was three. Um, she's incredibly clever, um, incredibly funny, and she will do great things. But I need to instill that early in her before the world gets in there. Yeah, and I suppose you've got to think obviously, you've so much experience, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm.
0: what 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 techniques and support will help Mm -hmm. her but for for parents that might you know Mm -hmm. might not have a clue of no experience of it and perhaps if it then does go undiagnosed Mm -hmm. you can
1: imagine how much more challenging and I find the guilt actually associated with me knowing what to do really I had to work through that guilt because I meet families on a daily basis that don't have that expertise that don't have that network that I have Mm -hmm. that I can pick up the phone and ring you know, an SLT when we needed one, or an occupational therapist when we needed one, and I knew the best people to call. Mm-hmm. And that guilt really—I struggled with that guilt actually for a few months. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, and I think that's where the push towards um, starting that page on Instagram came from. Was I have all this knowledge, I can just put it out there, mm-hmm. and then other people will and you know, I answer DMs frequently from people and you know, give kind of ideas of things uh, or just even explain, well it could be that they're thinking this way or need that or um and I find that really, really powerful. We've got a really lovely little community in on Instagram really. Um, but that's all come from that need for other parents to know what I know as well. Yeah.
0: And from your experience in terms of school level I suppose
1: particularly primary
0: what improvements would you like to see in terms of how Well, perhaps where to start, that could be a whole other podcast but in terms of how, how it's being assessed currently and
1: what, what could be implemented to help if I could change. make just one change in all of the schools in Ireland it would be that the teacher training colleges don't spend one day on autism mm-hmm. it is a, an elective module on special needs That is, you walk into any classroom, and I go into classrooms frequently, I have some classes that have four and five children on the spectrum, and we have a teacher who has no idea, is hungry for knowledge, is hungry for help, but has no idea. That's not good enough for our children, because they, you know, the government wouldn't put up with it if it was the other way around. If we were sending autism teachers into a class full of neurotypical kids, and just telling the neurotypical kids well, you need to just kind of come around to the way we do things. That wouldn't be tolerated because the neurotypical is the majority mm-hmm. and the autistic kids are the, are the neurominority. Mm-hmm. So that would be the one thing that I would absolutely love to change is to see autism being a full part of teacher training and a proper autism training, not the medical model of disability and deficit and all that language that... That is currently being used, but more the difference and understanding autism and understanding the autistic perspective, understanding why we often behave the way we do, why we need the things we do, and the sensory experience of the classroom as well is a huge one. So yeah, that would be my one change. Yeah. I could go on um, on that one. It's <laughs> long, long, long shocking, time. actually. It's only this yeah. such a small one, one part day. Part actually, that's it's um, one day, and and we have look, we're looking at two percent of the population is autistic, but that's two percent of the autistic two percent of the population is identified we have kids in primary schools who haven't been identified yet who are on wait lists and that only gets those percentages are only higher when we get into dash areas and areas of need where people can't afford to pay for a private assessment but that's another conversation so. Yeah. And I suppose thinking about some of those changes, and uh, you mentioned
0: the, some of the, the the sensory aspects of it. I mean, some of these these are all things that 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 can help everyone. Yeah. And this is, you know, we need to think
1: more about this. Un- yeah, universal, universal design design. design. Yeah. Um, so universal design basically is a, a, d- a design concept that says that you know we can we can design spaces that are suitable for all. So suitable for those with sensory differences and, um, you know, physical differences um, and that it's not disabling for the um, for the general public. It actually is just suitable for everyone. So when we make small changes and I've been contacted actually by a number of um, a couple of organisations who are trying to input universal design into their um, education centres. And I've been talking to them about that and they were like, we have no budget, but we're trying to figure out what we can change without budget. And I said, well, the first thing is lighting, lighting that, that kind of strip lighting is the hardest for anyone really with a, with sensory aspects, their Mm -hmm. eyes. Um, And even things like providing maps to a building, telling you where smells will be evident. These are all really small things doesn't cost anything to have a map available um, when I was coming here today I google mapped it I did a street view so I could see the building I did the inside so I was fully prepared these are all the things I need in order to feel comfortable mm-hmm. so once I had all that done I was fine to come here today because I knew exactly but if had had I not done them you would have met a very different me I would have been very anxious and mm-hmm. um, so I was delighted there was like pictures of the inside pictures of the meeting rooms everything online Yeah. Um, and I suppose maybe there's something for
0: us to learn from that and for bi- for businesses as well that you know these are things we might take for granted and mm-hmm. not realise that the, the, the stress and anxiety mm-hmm. it can cause for someone not having mm-hmm. um, sort of I suppose this sort of I guess it's preparation, it's knowing mm. what environment you're going into, something that we, we could perhaps have sent you, you know, yeah. it's all factored in. But that's a great because I'm used
1: to doing it. I do it automatically, yeah. you know, and I try and explain to parents as well the need as to why you need to do these things because to me, when I have those pictures, they stay in my head. I can actually bring up all of them now. They're always on the left-hand side of a very um, visual memory They're all on the left hand side here, and I can scan through them at the front of the building, the main meeting room, the front desk, everything that was on the website. So when I was driving in, I went there, it is, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not a bit anxious going in. But there are really small things that make the biggest difference. Um, You know, like that yellow, that green light up there now, that is really distracting. Mm -hmm. Like there's just small things. That don't need Mm -hmm. to be a problem, Mm -hmm. but for unfortunately, you see, because it's the newer minority have the difficulty with it, and I have been in situations where I was in a shopping center and it was really like way too loud to the point I couldn't actually navigate the shopping center. I had to take out my I wear tiny earbuds and I put them in because I couldn't think. I was actually so stressed out, my heart was racing and everything. I went up to the desk and I said, "Do you want me asking why is the music so loud?" And she went oh, we don't, we don't even notice it. And I was like, it is like deafening. And she was like, oh. And I was like, yeah. I said, I'm autistic and I, I'm really noise sensitive, but this is the worst it's ever been in here. She didn't offer to turn it down or anything. So I just kept my headphones in and walked off. Um, and I was dreading going back there the following week. Now, I did have a conversation with the manager and you know what? He was really, really nice. He did ring me back. Um, but what I found was he was trying to offer individualized solutions mm-hmm. to what is a a larger problem because he was saying maybe you could go with this door and maybe you could do this and I'm like I don't think you're understanding where I'm coming from that this is not just me yes, this yeah. is a whole population of of, of people who are avoiding mm-hmm. going to your center yeah. because of this issue and I think it was treated as an individual complaint rather than me trying to explain. Well, this is a yeah. problem yeah. for yeah. a larger group of people. Yeah,
0: yeah. and actually, I hadn't realised that you know some of the the sensory issues. You know, it can. It's it, I suppose it's not just um, distressing, but it can actually be painful mm-hmm. for um, someone with autism to perhaps say there's something to, to touch or the sound that actually
1: mm-hmm. is that bad that it's, yeah. it's, it causes pain, like certain sounds make me feel like my head is just going to explode Mm. and it makes me very agitated very I get very snappy um like and there is a couple of uh, verbal stims that my daughter has and she makes a certain noise and that goes through me so that's where our autism differs and But she's also super noise sensitive. And you'll find that the people who are super noise sensitive are also the loudest people, to, people in the room because they're creating that noise in order to block out everybody else's. So my daughter is super loud, like super loud. But obviously I'm an adult now and I, I don't do that. But I would put on music, i put in headphones, i listen to podcasts to try and regulate yeah. what I take in. Um, you know, and I always joked about my differences when I was a child... I used to say I was fruit textophobic because I would physically vomit with the texture of fruit. Like, as in, you'll see my eyes start to water and I will physically vomit. So I have to like drink smoothies and stuff to get my fruit in because I cannot physically eat anything. I'd eat an apple, a green apple or banana. That's that's the limit. That's as far as frozen. Maybe a champagne soaked strawberry. Everything <laughs> and again, but like it would be very unusual for me to eat a piece of fruit because it just makes me physically sick um and I used to say I was sportily challenged because I fall over everything like I'm surprised I didn't bash myself off things coming in here I'm usually covered in bruises I'm extremely clumsy and um, but I always thought these were Laura isms they're mm. not Laura isms mm. they're autistic traits and um it was actually one of the uh, an OT that I work with we were sitting at the desk and she had seen my daughter she'd met my daughter and she was like look she's sensory processing she's definitely dyspraxic as well but we can do a proper test as so she's at least six and I was like and oh. she was like but she didn't get it from nowhere you're extremely dyspraxic and I went what? this was before my identification autistic and I went what? she said oh yeah she said I'm watching you you are so dyspraxic she said your desk your walk everything she said I've seen you she said I'm watching you the whole time you are incredibly dis-. and she's Spanish she's really like honest straight to so I was like <laughs> Oh, and that kind of started my path, really, of going. This is more than so I am different, um, and there is more to it. And it was it was very refreshing for her to say that.
0: And how did you find pregnancy?
1: Awful. I was a really grumpy pregnant person. Were you anxious. Um. um my first pregnancy um, with Big Boss, as I call her, um, I was a little bit, but not much. I found it physically hard, but I was still working out four mornings a week until I was 37 weeks, and then my pelvis went to 38 after I stopped, and I couldn't walk for kind of the bones of a week. Um, and actually, my physio was. 36 weeks pregnant working on me. So it was gas. She's still my physio. She's brilliant. Um, but my anxiety started after the birth. I had a very tough delivery with Big Boss. I've spoken about that before. And I kind of know why now because a lot of the science is now saying that when when you're delivering a baby, your brain communicates with the baby's brain and tells the baby what position to be in and all those, right? So that, it's really fascinating. But in autistic births, the baby's brain doesn't communicate as efficiently with the mom's brain. And that's why they end up in different positions. And that's why a lot of the time we end up with C-sections or assisted births with an autistic baby. Yeah. So it makes so much sense now because I had a 37-hour labor. Uh, the first 36 hours were great. I know everyone laughs when I say that, but they genuinely were. Like I labored at home, no painkillers. I had a tense machine. I had my ball. We watched movies. It was amazing. Like we fondly look back at that period Um, and we were just tracking my my uh, contractions but then um, I had a severe bleed Um, when I was 30 oh god I was about 18 hours in so I was rushed to hospital because she wasn't moving and when I got there they were like oh yeah no your water's not even gone you're fine you can go home if you want and I was like no I think I'll stay I just I'd rather stay and then went from there I went to the pool and it was all great then she just went sideways and would not move. And she was internally moved, and she would not move. So I signed for a C-section, and my husband went off and got gowned up, and they had put me on a drip. And as I was going to the theatre, I basically started screaming because the the contractions were coming just one after the other, and I would no gas and air, mm-hmm. and I would no painkillers, I would no nothing. So I was screaming. He heard me screaming. So when he got into theatre, I was after my. Shot on my back. I was like, happy. And he was like, white, <laughs> like white. And he was like, I thought you were dead. And I was like, no, I'm grand. I should have got this earlier, you know. And he was like, oh my God, this is so. We ended up with vacuum, and her poor little head got ripped. Um, and then we did forceps, and um, she came out with forceps. And then I ended up with a manual extraction of my placenta because her cord snapped. So I was in a bit theatre after that, and then in shock, in a shock blanket. So I really didn't even hold her properly because my arms weren't working um, until she was a day old. Um, But because of that experience, I think that fed into my maternal mental health afterwards. And I ended up with severe postnatal anxiety. So I would have, I might be walking down the stairs, and I'd literally see in my head her flying out of my arms and out a window or I would be driving and I would see another car crashing into me and I would literally be having an anxiety attack. But nobody knew because I was done up in makeup, out socializing, doing my thing. And I think she was about three months old and I said to my husband, I'm struggling. And he was shocked. And um, so I went for counselling and I did really well with counselling. Went back to work in the october november and ended up pregnant again in february surprisingly um, was march march i was pregnant so she was we told everyone when she was at her first birthday and i think that period of that that tiny gap mm-hmm. fed into me having a really rough pregnancy with my second um And then my first was experiencing no babbling, no pointing, no all those little signs. Um, I was still trying to work. My pregnancy was tough. Then she was breached, so I had to have a section. So I discharged myself on Christmas Eve um, to be there for Big Boss uh, for Christmas morning. I slept on the couch because I couldn't even make it up the stairs. I was in so much pain. And I'm back at it now going, you should have stayed in hospital. But... um, And from there, things really went downhill. I I went downhill fast in my head. And I now know that because I'm autistic, when I didn't have children, I had space and time to regulate, space and time to recuperate from any stresses that I had. But then you have these little people who need you all of the time. You're never really on your own. Never on your own you don't get sleep because my eldest just didn't sleep mm-hmm. and then my youngest kind of did sleep but the eldest still wasn't sleeping so if one wasn't waking me the other one was it was only 19 months between yeah. them so it went downhill very fast um and a beautiful friend of mine jennifer cook she's a best-selling author an american lady she came here to um give a talk and she said, oh, I'll have to see you while I'm here. So I ended up collecting her and bringing her out to my house. And we were sitting there and she just said, you're not doing great. And I went, no, I'm fine. I'm great. Yeah, I'm fine. And she was like, okay. And she said, have you ever, have you read that book I gave you yet? And she'd give me a copy of her book, Autism and Heels. And I said, no, I haven't got around to it. I need to get around to it. And she was like, I, I think you should. And I think you should do the chick list, which is like a checklist for autistic females. And I was like yeah 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 and I was just keeping it all up until one day I couldn't it was like seven radio stations playing in my head all the time and I was going downhill really really fast and when I finally told my husband I was actually hanging on by a thread mm. I was I was ready to leave like leave everything so yeah. I, I was just it was all too much so start of rebuilding myself rebuilding who I was was learning who I was and that's where the assessment kind of came in as well Um, Is postnatal depression more common than autism? From what I think anecdotally Mm -hmm. I can say yes because any of the women that I've met that are late identification Mm -hmm. have all struggled Mm -hmm. with their maternal mental health because you don't have that time to recuperate mm-hmm. from the world you have little people mm-hmm. and it's so
0: raising kids it's so unpredictable
1: mm-hmm. that's the thing
0: and I, I guess you're used to you know if, if things can be predicted if you can know what you're going into exactly. the anxiety you can, can keep control of the anxiety yeah. but obviously with especially you know babies mm-hmm. every day is different mm-hmm. you're always thrown mm-hmm. new challenge you've never done it before I mean it's it's exactly. no wonder
1: and the lack of sleep Mm. I genuinely need more sleep because it's just more exhausting navigating everything. Mm-hmm. So that less sleep I got, the worse my mental health became. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm a big believer in mental health. And I, I had this tattoo. Um, I got that in 2021. Just to remind me, because it's a lotus and they grow in mud. Um, it's to remind me that beautiful things come from dark places. If you can just hang on in there they do come from really hard experiences because I found myself like I genuinely feel that there is a Laura before identification and there is a Laura afterwards and the Laura afterwards is so much happier and self-aware and self-compassionate and all of those things and I have the the semicolon which is my story isn't over and I have the um the neurodiversity symbol in there as well to kind of represent my neurology and my little girl's neurology and you know we celebrate uh, World Autism Day by lighting it up gold because the autistic community don't like to light it up blue they don't like the puzzle piece they don't Mm. like any of that so we light it up gold because the first two letters of the chemical composition for gold are AU so I wear gold sparkly shoes and you know we we celebrate being us and I celebrate my autistic birthday as well it's the 10th of August and we celebrate my little girl's autistic birthday, that's the 11th of December. And um, so we're just very, very proud. Um, I would just love if other people would see the beauty of it. But that starts with spreading information and spreading awareness that there's nothing wrong with us, mm-hmm. we're just different.
0: And that's you to think how, how much you know you've. You you've been through and women in general go through and to think really how much you've had to mask and co- you know mm-hmm. like uh, I've read you said you were just so brilliant at coping and I think mm-hmm. it's when we just always feel this as we have to show that mm-hmm. and it's incredible really to think how how we keep that one under what's going mm-hmm. on underneath mm-hmm. so I think it's, it's such an inspiring positive message oh, for everyone you. listening yeah. um and I'm thinking also of of teenage girls as mm. well. I mean, your experiences with them and because as they come into the
1: teenagers, those challenges mm-hmm. that
0: they're going to encounter will increase.
1: And I think one of the big things for me around autistic girls in the teenage years, one of the big lessons I try and teach all of the girls I come into contact with is the difference between someone who flatters you and somebody who genuinely compliments you. Our girls are really, really vulnerable because they don't fit. So when somebody comes along and is super nice to them and super accommodating, they tend to trust that it is a genuine experience. And so many of my girls have been caught out either bullying wise or just being abused by boyfriends or taken advantage of because of that social naivety and that looking for a place to belong. Um, so one of the biggest lessons I honestly say to every single teenage girl is know the difference between someone who flatters and somebody who compliments genuinely, somebody who cares. Mm-hmm. Because that it, there is a difference. There is a difference. Because flattery comes with exchange, mm. you know. Um, and unfortunately our girls can be very vulnerable in that respect Um, so that would be one of the one of the big things and the other thing is to be authentic and know the difference between the masked you and the real you and I do a lot of kind of um, in order to figure out how you mask you have to look back first before you can do it in the present so giving them little checklists of you know how did I do in that conversation did I was I constantly scanning to see how everyone was reacting to what I said was I smiling on cue rather than because I wanted to um was I copying any behaviors of the other people in the conversation all those little things but if you imagine if you're doing that all the time it is exhausting Mm -hmm. um and there's certain ones you don't even know you're doing like I can remember before I went for my identification, I said to my husband, uh, do you practice conversations? And he was like, like what, like, what do you mean? Like in work? And I was like, well, just generally. And he was like, well, if I had to give someone like bad news at work, I might kind of practice out what I'd say. But no, not really. And I went, oh. And he said, why? And I was like, No reason. But I had been practicing what to say to the postman when he came to the door. Like I used to, that was my thing at half seven. I'd be like, he'll be here indeed. And I was like, good morning, silly weather. Um, And I was expecting this package. And if he says this, then I can say that. I was doing that automatically because that's what I'd done for as long as I could remember in everything, you know. And then there's sometimes where I'll go off script because somebody else has gone off script. They have said something that I don't expect them to say. And then I end up saying something absolutely ridiculous like happy birthday or like I'm being like totally mortified. But, um, or somebody catches me off guard on the street and they say, you oh, know, hi, you I could go, "Yes," and then I'm like, "Oh, no. <laughs> like what did I just do there?" And they're looking at me, and I'm like, oh, "My God, it's so embarrassing!" But it just comes out of my mouth because I haven't practiced, and I'm, off, like, I'm like, "Did you not get the memo about the script for this conversation? You were supposed to ask me this, and then I could talk about this, and then I would ask you that question." And I, I do go into a panic. Sometimes, um, but I'm in mean a bit of a warning because I think I've gone off on a <laughs> well, uh, of I was just going to finish there with,
0: do you find anything physically that helps? I mean, we, we spoke to a friend um, yesterday, actually, whose sister um, had a late diagnosis mm-hmm. and um but she was she was describing I don't know if you will relate this but sort of as um it's almost like you could be floating above your body and it's trying to get back into yourself back into your ground in, yourself. Grounding. grounding. Yourself. but is that something is there anything you do that
1: oh so I do there is a lot of things that I do um the first one would be breath work I do a lot of 478 breathing that tends to calm my nervous system um, I am still on medication from my um, postnatal depression. I tried to come off it and experienced horrific side effects. It was constant panic attacks for about four days and I had to take to my bed. So my doctor said, we'll try again in, in kind of a year's time. Um, but breath work is incredibly important. Um, I also attended a two-day uh, seminar with um, Kirsten, uh, Kirsten Neff, um, Christopher Germer, who are kind of the, the gurus of self-compassion. And I found that incredibly helpful. So now when I'm struggling, I tend to hold myself mm-hmm. and remind myself that this is hard mm-hmm. and I'm doing my best. And another thing I tend to, um, I do this a lot with the kids I work with as well. I ask them to draw the most kind, considerate, friendly person they can think of. And give them a name. And then when they're being hard on themselves or when they're experiencing stress or experiencing hard time, that they imagine this person talking to them. That's and that weird is weird. their friend. You know, that yeah. is that person. So I do that for myself as well. What would I say to myself? Um, but my self-care routine is very much, I have to take time out. Even my kids know it now. You know, I'll say, I'm got, mommy is really stressed. Mummy's going to have a coffee in quiet and then she'll come back to you and we'll play. And they know they give me five minutes and they've known this since like I've been doing this like two years like my husband walked in on me in the living room one night one night and we were just moved into our house I was in an egg chair in the dark drinking coffee and he was like lights on or off I was like off and he knows now he's like she just needs time so I'm respectful of what my body tells me I need if I need rest if I need time alone if I need you know it sounds like you're very in tune with yourself. Only in the last few years. Yeah. Only yeah. in the last few years. I've had to really analyze what it is that it, look, what self-care looks like to me. And it's not all bubble baths, although that's really nice too. It's more about respecting your needs and taking and communicating with those you love that that's what you need. Because I can be a better mom I can be a better wife, I can be a better employee, I can be a better everything when I've taken care of me mm-hmm. and that's my most important thing really is, is to never end up in the place I was mm-hmm. but I don't think I'm going back there anytime soon thankfully. That's well. that's such a
0: good note to finish on. Thanks yeah. so much. I, 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 well, you've you've done fantastically well <laughs> oh, today. Honestly, you. with especially God, we probably oh, couldn't sure. have worse lighting for you it's and everything. The worst venue. The worst, but but you've just it's it's been really inspiring and educational as well. Thank, thank you. So thank you very much. So interesting, Nora. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Now. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I it. Great, yeah. yeah. Great.